Welcome to the audio channel of the Reverend Dr. C.H.E. Sadoffel. His purpose is to preach Christ, teach the Bible, and make disciples. Now let us open our Bibles and our hearts as we listen to him proclaim the Word of God. Church, the title of this morning's sermon is Waiting on God. And I would ask the congregation to please stand and turn to Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, as we will first pray and then read the word of God. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before God Almighty, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee. Your word is a lamp to our paths and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen his servant to deliver a word of truth so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. Habakkuk chapter 2 verses 1 to 4 says, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come, it will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Please be seated. This morning's message is called Waiting on God. We're in Habakkuk chapter 2. In Habakkuk chapter 1, the prophet is wrestling with God. In other words, he's asking God, why God, why? He's looking at the evil and wickedness of his fellow countrymen in the kingdom of Judah. People are behaving badly, and he says, God, why do you allow evil to exist and do nothing about it? God answers his prophet and says, Habakkuk, actually, I am doing something about it. In fact, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians to judge the people. The Babylonians were the bad guys, and that makes Habakkuk more frustrated and upset. And he wants to know, God, how can you allow an evil nation to judge evil? And Habakkuk ends chapter 1 of his book confused, asking why, 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 why. He still can't comprehend God's ways in the world. But then in between the end of Habakkuk chapter 1 and the beginning of Habakkuk chapter 2, something happens. Habakkuk changes. Habakkuk at the beginning of chapter 1 says, God, why don't you do something? And God does. He begins changing 
Habakkuk. And the tone, the language, the posture, the way Habakkuk speaks to God in between the end of chapter 1 and the start of chapter 2 changes. And what happens, in, even though Habakkuk 1.17 and 2.1 immediately follow one another in the Bible in numerical sequence, that doesn't necessarily mean the events happened immediately in time. We don't know how long that gap was. It could have been a day. It could have been a week. It could have been a month. All we know is something happened in that gap. And in that gap, Habakkuk decides to wait on God. He engages in prayer and speaks to God in Habakkuk chapter 1. And then in that gap, he makes the decision to wait on God. As God says later on, though it tarries, wait for it. So what does that mean? When someone says, I'm waiting on God, I don't think a Christian can go to church in America in the 21st century and not hear someone else say, I'm waiting on God. So what does that mean exactly? Waiting on God, number one, is an active exercise. Waiting on God is active, it's not Passive. The problem with the word waiting is when we hear the word wait, we think of being stationary and not doing something. We're waiting at the bus stop. We're waiting in line. We're waiting in the car before a child comes out of the front doors of the school. And when we're waiting, nothing is actually happening other than us standing still. But waiting on God is active, not passive. What does the text say? Habakkuk says, after he decides to wait on God, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Those are all verbs of action telling us waiting on God is active, not passive. When he says, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. In Hebrew, Habakkuk literally says, I will take a stand and then take a stand. Meaning, he's going to stand physically in place and then set his mind to wait on God. Waiting on God is not only active in a physical sense, it's also active in a psychological sense, meaning you commit yourself to standing firm, to resisting, to not running away, to assuming a fighting position and submitting yourself as one who is ready for duty in service to a greater authority. Waiting on God means committing yourself to the actual process of waiting. And what does the text say? Habakkuk says, I will stand on my guard and station myself on the ramparts. When we wait on God, what are we standing on? The rampart. Who is the rampart? The mighty fortress that is our God. 
Unlike when you wait in any other arena of life, when you wait there, you are by yourself. But when you wait on God, God is there with you, equipping you to actually wait on himself. When you wait on God, you are active, but you are also not alone. You stand on God's character. You stand on God's word. You stand on God's promises. And the best promise that comes to mind is Isaiah 41.10, where God tells his children, Do not anxiously look about, for I will surely be with you. God is with you and actually helps you and equips you to wait on him. Waiting on God is active, which implies an attentive attitude. It means having an ear that is ready and finely attuned to listening to the word of God. As Charles Haddon Spurgeon once wrote, if we have a deaf ear toward God, we must not marvel if he gives us a dumb tongue, end quote. How much better would the Christian church, how much better would individual lives be if people simply listened to what God already said? If, sim- if people merely got their blueprint on what it means to wait on God by reading the blueprint for waiting in the book of Habakkuk. Beloved, we don't need a new insight, a new conference, or any new wisdom that teaches us how we can wait on God. We don't need a new word because there's nothing wrong with the old word to attune our ears to what God has already said. And what does Habakkuk say? He says, I'm going to see what God will speak to me. Let's say that again because you just missed it. Habakkuk says, I'm going to see with my eyes what God will speak to me with his ears. Meaning what? Habakkuk is going to have his eyes open actively, being alert, awake, and oriented, looking at events, looking at situations, because he knows God is going to speak through him through the events of everyday life. We can see what God speaks to us. Did you think that sermon series the pastor spoke on was happenstance, was random? Did you think you had a problem and the series he spoke that just so happened to speak to you was chance? It wasn't. You are now seeing what God is speaking to you. God speaks to us through the voice of the church, through the voice of current events, through the blessings of everyday providence. God will often speak to you by opening and shutting doors and making things that were once routine and ordinary now not a possibility. God works in such mysterious ways. He will compel other individuals to do things that don't make any sense. And when you ask them, hey, why did you do this? They can't even give you a logical answer because even they don't know that it was God's hand of providence moving and directing them to do his divine will. Waiting on God is active. God's voice is always there speaking to us so we can see, but his voice 
can only be discerned by spiritual people who have their spiritual sense of hearing finely attuned to hear the voice of a spiritual God. And what waiting on God does, it actually attunes and sharpens our spiritual sense of hearing so we can now pick up and discern God's voice. Because the irony is, God is always yelling every minute of every day, but when God yells, it's actually a whisper, which can only be picked up when we wait patiently on him. The fact of the matter is, God is sovereign. This is God's world. When stuff happens in God's world on God's timetable, that doesn't catch God by surprise. He either purposely makes it happen or permissively allows it to happen. Therefore, he's always speaking to us. Waiting on God, therefore, is active It's not a fleeting endeavor. It is persistent and purposeful. And the more you mature in your relationship with God and the closer you get to him, the more you realize he is never silent. He is always yelling. Waiting on God, number one, is active, not passive. Waiting on God means number two. It means dedicated, private time. Dedicated, private time. Private means private. It's you and God. No one else can wait on God for you. Your pastor, your elder, your spouse, your parents, your cousin, that person you like goes to church, they cannot wait on God for you because it means dedicated, private time. And the three avenues that apply to the most is Bible study, prayer, and fasting. In Bible study, you immerse your mind with the Word of God. In prayer, you saturate your heart with the presence of the Holy Spirit. And in fasting, you are literally mortifying your flesh so the spiritual version of you may flourish. Waiting on God means dedicated private time. Look what the prophet says. He says, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me. Habakkuk says, I will keep watch, meaning what? He is a watchman. Watchmen need to be alone so they can watch. If a watchman is standing on the rampart and he's distracted and he's having a side conversation, guess what? He's not going to do a good job of watching. There's a reason the Bible tells us when the flood hit planet Earth thousands of years ago, only eight people saw it coming. The rest of the planet was in a stupor of deep sleep. Why? Because no one was watching. It didn't catch Noah by surprise. It didn't catch his family by surprise. No one asked, hey, why is this man building an ark on dry land? Because no one had dedicated private time with God. Why did you not see that coming? Because you weren't waiting on God. You were waiting on something else. Waiting on a paycheck. Waiting on a vacation. Waiting on a politician. Waiting on someone else to do it for you. But waiting on God means dedicated, one-on-one, you and God, private time. 
When you station yourself on the rampart, guess what, and you're watching, you can now look back and see what God has done. You can now look forward in anticipation of what God is going to do. You can look to your left, you can look to your right, and you can also look up and gain a more divine cosmic perspective so you can now interpret reality not based on your narrow lens, but upon God's cosmic lens. Waiting on God means dedicated private time, and the first person you should begin watching is yourself. Do you know what a godly church leader and a godly spouse will do every now and then? They will tell you about yourself. They will bring you into a reality check and say, you know what, partner, hold on a second there. Let's bring things back to reality. This is how things look from the outside. Because the danger is, the danger is that when you have a relationship with God and begin to coast and begin to say, I'm okay, I'm doing everything right, you now get yourself in a bubble and you insulate yourself from what's really real. And you now, when you allow someone to give you honest, godly criticism, who actually wants to see you do better and to grow in your personal holiness, that advice is more valuable than gold. And they can pierce that bubble and give you an... In God can use that person to, to communicate his words through them so you can look at yourself in the mirror and examine yourself. David writes in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Have you ever considered that if God actually answers your prayer and reveals yourself to yourself, you may not like what you see? That's what watchmen, that's what dedicated private time actually means. Waiting on God means obedience. Waiting on God means obedience. He says, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Let's make sure we understand what the prophet is actually saying here. Habakkuk is actually saying, I'm going to spend some time and think about what I'm going to say to God when he chastises me, when he gives me a spiritual spanking, when he tells me what I'm doing was wrong. Are you kidding me? This is a man who trusts God so much. He basically says, God, if you knock on my door and you bring a bag of blessings, amen. But if you knock on my door and bring a bag of rebuke, yay and amen even more. Because guess what? Habakkuk is waiting on God. He's not waiting on a solution. He's not waiting on a circumstance change. He's waiting on God himself and whatever God brings with him. Because waiting on God means obedience. It, it means reaching a point where you trust God so much, you realize whatever God's will is, you say, yes, Lord. 
If God wants to bless you, yes, Lord. If God wants to change things and move, move you through a season of scarcity, amen. Because you now know your loving Father who you trust needs you to be in a particular situation and anything else wouldn't be to your long-term eternal benefit. Waiting on God means obedience. And that obedience means what? Keeping watch. If you are a watchman and you're on the night shift and you go from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. and don't see anything, you don't see any bears, you don't see any bad guys mauling the, the wall, does that now mean because you didn't see anything, because you didn't hear anything, you're not going to show up the next day? It's not. It means keeping watch, keeping it up, and even when you don't hear anything or see anything, you commit yourself to an obedient posture. Because a watchman who is obedient realizes he cannot leave his post People may get hurt. And the watchman keeps on watching until his superior officer gives him a change of orders. Waiting on God means obedience, and that obedience animates as patience in real life. Why is this? Waiting on God equals obedience, which equals patience. Why is that? Because your patience is intimately related to your faith. When you truly and earnestly trust God, that means you will wait. If you don't trust God, if you don't believe him, are you going to wait on him? Nope. That means you're going to be impatient. That means you get fed up with God really quickly and do whatever it is you want to do. In a world less God, no one waits on God because no one really trusts him. It's a world full of Ishmaelites. People do what they want to do right now. But when you truly trust in and believe God, you are patient and wait on him. Does it not say in Galatians 5:22 that our fruit of the spirit is patience, love, joy and patience. So if you've ever asked yourself, why does God prescribe? Why does God allow his faithful servants to wait on him? And one of the answers is so that it cultivates patience. Waiting on God as obedience, as patient obedience, was the tipping point for Habakkuk. Because once the prophet says, I will wait on him until if I am reproved, I will wait to see what I will reply to the Lord when I am reproved, it is then that Habakkuk stops talking and now God answers. Let's say that again because that's critically important. As soon as Habakkuk enters into a mode of patient obedience and he says, whatever God brings, that is what I will accept, it is then that God answers him. And what does God say? 
Habakkuk 2, verse 2. Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. Point number four. Waiting on God means waiting for others. Waiting on God means waiting for others, meaning your period of waiting has meaning beyond yourself. God says, Habakkuk, record the vision. In other words, I'm going to show you something. I'm going to open your eyes and reveal something to you. And when I reveal it to you, inscribe it on tablets. Write it down. Memorialize it so that someone else can now come after. They can have an eye into what was revealed to you. They can taste of some spiritually infused wisdom. And they can now use that knowledge and run with it in their own personal lives. God is telling Habakkuk, I'm going to show you something, not so that you can keep it to yourself, so that other people can run with it and animate their own God-infused lives with the knowledge I'm giving to you. God never blesses you. God never gives anyone a spiritual gift so that you can keep it to yourself. The way God works is he pours himself out on you, fills up your vessel so that you can touch and bless the lives of all those around you. God gives us stuff. God shows us stuff so that we can be a blessing to all those around us so he can bless us some more. God never puts a treasure in a vessel for that vessel to keep the treasure for themselves. He gives you so that you can give. Record the vision, inscribe it, so that others may run. If I sat in my library at home, stacks of books everywhere, commentaries, old sermons, up to kazoo, and I began learning, and I began digesting, and things would start clicking in my mind. Oh, that's good. Oh, that makes sense. Now I get it. If I kept all of that in my mind and never shared it with anybody, is that knowledge of any good? Nope. I would actually be selfish if God revealed all of that to me and I didn't tell anybody about it. So now here's the application. If you know Jesus, if God's been good to you, and you have a testimony, and you have knowledge which has the potential to deliver souls from eternal death inside of your heart, what does that say about you? What does that say about me if we don't tell someone else about it? If we don't inscribe it on tablets so that others may run? Many people aren't going to be like me. They're not going to have a mic. They're not going to have a pulpit. That is fine. But you have a voice. You have a hand. You have neighbors. You have co-workers. Record the vision. Inscribe it on tablets so that others may run and write it on their hearts. The next thing God says is, 
For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come. It will not delay. Point number five is this. Waiting on God means future preference. Waiting on God means future preference. I say all the time, eternity matters more than the present because there's a preference for the future. The entire message of the Bible, the gospel of Jesus Christ, always has a message whose chief glory lies in the future. The Bible never says your best life will be now. It always says your best life is what will be in paradise. The point is this. God is telling Habakkuk, although it tarries, although it may seem as if things are stagnant right now, there is an appointed time. There is a period of fulfillment in the future when this entire period of waiting is going to come to its appointed fulfillment. Because God says, although it may tarry, it will certainly, surely come. And when it does, it will not fail. Everything that God decrees, it will come to pass, but it will come to pass at precisely, exactly the appointed time that God has prescribed it. And on God's timetable, nothing is ever late. On our timetable, it may seem as if things are tarrying, but on his timetable, everything has never been late since the beginning of time. I made a decision maybe two or three years ago that whenever I was going to go into New York City, I would never drive again because when you take the highways and byways, even though from our house to the city, it's only 23 minutes with no traffic, it never works out like that. There's an accident. There's just something going on. So I decided I'm always going to take the train. So I'd get my ticket, I'd get on the platform, and for a while there were no timetables in the platforms. So I'd get my ticket, get up on the platform, and then I would wait. Be still. Five minutes go by, 10 minutes go by, 15 minutes go by, and the longer I would wait, the longer it would seem as if something was wrong. Was there an accident? Is there a train delay? I don't get it. Wait, 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 tick, tick, tick. I look left, I look right. I don't see any trains coming. There must be something wrong. It would seem as if there was something, it would seem as if that something was going wrong. There was an error somewhere in the Long Island Railroad system. But although I was sitting there on that platform waiting, there was a conductor in a booth who had a timetable who knew precisely when my train was coming. He knew when it left the last station, he knew when it would arrive at my station, and he knew that train was exactly on time, but the problem was I didn't have access to that 
timetable. The point is this. Waiting on God means a future preference. And although it may seem as if things are tarrying, they're not really tarrying. They're really happening according to God's divine timetable. Waiting is tough. Make no qualms about it, but the end will come at precisely the time God has prescribed. And God allows his people to wait because the waiting is a test. The waiting is a sieve. It's a winnowing fork. In the entire Bible, God makes a distinction between Israel and Egypt. He makes a distinction between those who are his and those who are not. And when you trust God, you will stay in the station and wait. But if you don't trust God, you'll say, I'm going to get where I need to go using my own plan. And you leave the station and you stop waiting. Waiting on God means future preference. And the godly person trusts God, believes what God says, believes God when he says, although it tarries, wait for it, because at the precise appointed time, it's going to hit, and it will be effectual, and it will not delay. And the person of God knows that if they wait on God, they are waiting on something worth waiting for. Six points. Waiting on God is not compatible with pride. Waiting on God is not compatible with pride. Verse 4 says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. The proud one is the one who has pride. And the great sin of all of humanity is pride. Trusting in yourself more than God. And the only qualification for being prideful is that you are a human being. And this point is very, very quick because God makes a contrast between the person who is proud and the righteous person who waits on him. What he says next is, but the righteous will live by his faith. So the reverse statement is this. The person who is proud the person who doesn't trust God, they will not live by faith. They will instead die by unbelief. Because they don't trust God, they don't like God, they don't love God, and they see no need for God in their life. Seventh point. Waiting on God means living by faith. Waiting on God means living by faith. The text says, but the righteous, your version may say, but the just. The NASB says, but the righteous will live by his faith. Question, do we ever stop living by faith? We don't. So if our faith enables us to wait, do we ever stop waiting on God? We don't. Waiting on God is actually a lifestyle. Now, I don't know how you feel about making marks in your Bible. 
But Habakkuk 2.4, where it says, but the righteous will live by his faith, is a verse that is ridiculously important. When God repeats himself, you better pay attention. But when God repeats himself twice, you better pay even special attention. Habakkuk 2.4 is mentioned here. It's mentioned in Romans 1.17. It's mentioned in Galatians 3.11. And also Hebrews 10.38. Habakkuk 2.4 should be underlined, italicized, and you put stars all around it because it's critically important. It's critically important because Habakkuk 2.4 is the crux of God's message to Habakkuk. If you want to know what the big idea of the book of Habakkuk is, it's right here in chapter 2, verse 4. But the righteous will live by his faith. And if we make a mistake about this verse, we're making a mistake about life. Because the text says, but the righteous will live. So what does this verse mean? But the righteous will live by his faith. The first part, the righteous. Who are the righteous? The righteous are people who have faith. The righteous are people who believe that Jesus Christ, being fully God and fully man, he lived, he died, his death was an atonement, and on the third day rose again. The righteous are people who believe that God's method of salvation is the right and the only way. They believe there is no alternative. They believe there is one Christ, one Lord, one gospel, and one Son of God. Just like the two thieves next to Jesus when he was crucified. There were two thieves. They were both guilty. They were both condemned. And guess what? Both thieves, either of them couldn't do anything. You know why? Because their hands and feet were nailed. They couldn't do anything. They didn't have the ability to do any good works. But one of them turned to Jesus and said, Lord, remember me in your kingdom. The only thing he could do was believe. And he did. And Jesus said, today, once this is over, today, you will see me in paradise. He believed that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and is the only way to salvation. The righteous person is someone who's been regened, who's been transformed by God. They have new thoughts, a new mind, new hearts, new desires, new dispositions. They have a desire to pursue that which is right. And a side effect of being declared righteous by God and being renewed by God is that you now wait on God. But the righteous will live by his faith. By design, God says something very broad here. He doesn't say the righteous will live sometimes by faith. He doesn't say the righteous will live in one area of their life by faith. He says the righteous will live, period, by faith. Every aspect of life is saturated by faith. It begins with faith. It grows with faith. It ends with faith. It matures by faith. Faith is a lifestyle that permeates every facet of that faith. 
I read commentaries to prepare a sermon, and people who are smarter than I am say, this is what my training and knowledge gives me insight to what this verse says. Do you know your life is a commentary on what you think about what the Bible says? If you truly believe God and you truly believe that what he says is true, your life will now be a commentary. It will validate whether you believe it as true or not true. And the righteous will live by faith. It's only by trusting and believing what God has said that you will now live by that faith. The life filled with faith is a life animated by the Holy Spirit that is sanctified, that grows by grace. Because a life that's saturated in faith is not matured by works, nor is it grown by individual effort. Living by faith means it, the faith is never measured either. Whether you have a mustard seed worth of faith or a titanic size amount of faith, you will live based upon whatever faith you have. Do you want to live? Amen. Then have faith. And the promise of Jesus Christ is this. Anyone who believes in him is guaranteed not to die because the righteous will live by faith. Once you have faith, once you believe in Jesus Christ, you are now born twice. You have a natural birth and then a spiritual birth. So when you die, only your body dies, but your spirit lives on forever. So not only will the righteous live by faith, they will live eternally. The righteous will live by his faith. The faith with which we live is personal. And that personal faith is both ridiculously simple and ridiculously complicated. It's ridiculously simple because the only thing a person must do is believe. That's it. Believe in Jesus Christ. It's ridiculously complicated because you're going to want to try and save yourself. You're going to want to try and go around God's way. You're going to want to try and do good things. You're going to want to try and figure things out your own way. But the righteous who lives by faith will realize they can never do better than Jesus. And we therefore do not live based upon what we can do now. We live based upon what Christ already did. So waiting on God means living by faith. I'll close by saying this. In the immediate context of, of God revealing these verses to Habakkuk, he was a Jew living in the kingdom of Judah when the Babylonians were coming. And as God said, so it happened. The Babylonians did come. They did exile the people, and Jerusalem was destroyed. So Habakkuk looked forward to a time in the future when all natural sources of faith were destroyed. People could have said, we're Jews, we're biological descendants of Judah, of Jacob, and they were killed. He could, he could have said, we are Jews, we're living on the promised land, they got evicted out. 
He could have said, we trust in the temple, the intersection point between God and humanity. The temple was destroyed. The righteous will live by faith. That is not faith in fruit, not flocks, not ideology, not a church, not a church leader, not a person or an outcome. The righteous will live by faith, and that faith's object is God himself. Now we'll zoom out and get the ultimate meaning. Because 2,000 years ago, the ultimate tarry test... Where, some, where the rubber met the road and the children of God had to wait on the Lord happened after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Where now people would look at the Messiah who just died and every natural source of faith would have been gone. They would have looked at the Messiah and said, he's now dead, all of our hope is crushed, All of our hopes and dreams and aspirations now died with him at Calvary. And then people would have entered the longest three days in history, the time after Christ's death and before his resurrection. But God's word said, although it tarries, wait for it. Although it tarries, wait for it. Because at the appointed time, it will certainly come and it will not fail. And after three days, after the period of waiting, after the period of silence, they came to the tomb and the angel asked them, Why do you seek the living one amongst the dead? For he has risen. God allows his children to wait. He allows them to go through the dark night because what he has in store at the appointed time is new life, is the hope of the resurrection, is a hope of new chances, is a hope of a new invigorated fellowship with him. Here's my question. Is Jesus dead? He is not, so why is your hope dead? Your hope is alive because our Messiah is alive. Our Lord is alive, and God shall never perish again. So we wait on the Lord, beloved, knowing and realizing what God has in store then in the future is far better than what exists now. And I'll close by saying this, Lamentations 3, 24 to 26. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. God bless you. We do hope that you have been enriched and equipped by the preaching of Dr. Sadoffel. For more valuable resources, please visit WCSK.org. Until next time, peace be with you, and to God be the glory forever.